Good morning. Either my mic's not on or that was pathetic. Good morning. Yeah, thank you so much. My name's Dave. Uh, I'm a deacon here and a uh, CG leader. And uh, I will be your captain as we navigate the peaceful waters of God's Word today. Because, uh, do you like that? The Holy Spirit just gave that to me. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> because uh, Chris and Crystal, as uh, Kate alluded to, are in Rhode Island. Today, Chris is officiating at his brother's wedding. Uh, so they're on a little mini vacation. I'm sure there's a stop at Yankee Stadium on the itinerary somewhere since they're that close to it, to the, to the hallowed stadium. Before we get started, though, I do want to remind you uh, of something that we're in the midst of. We're in the midst of uh, the deeping, Deepening Our Roots campaign, which is our campaign to raise some funds over and above our normal giving. Uh, we've moved into this building uh, and as we talked about four weeks ago, um, we needed some equipment that we had at Banneker that we don't have here. This building needs a little bit of love. We're, we're looking to uh, increase our staff as, as we grow as a body, and, and we're also looking to outreach worldwide with what we do. So we started this campaign four weeks ago to do so. And if you've wandered around the building, you've seen upstairs that we've got things painted. We've got some TVs in the kids' room, and so things are progressing nicely. Uh, but we still need your help, and the campaign's still going on through the end of October. Uh, for example, we still have our sound system from Banneker, which, you know, kind of over here during worship is like a Led Zeppelin concert. And then, uh, can, you peep, can you hear me up there? Are you good? Okay, we need an usher to check pulses, I think. Okay, good, good, good. So we still have some things to do. So we're about 40% of the way through the campaign, and we're not quite 40% of the way to our, to our goal of fundraising, so this is a gentle reminder. And you may have recalled when we chatted about this before, we talked about maybe giving up a latte or two, right? We talked about skipping a trip to the tap for, for a beverage. And then I brought up donuts, and I've gotten a lot of feedback <laughs> about the donut comment. I'm, I kind of think that if Redeemer were the children of Israel wandering around the desert, we would not have built a golden cap. It would have been a golden donut. Because apparently we love our donuts. Reminder, tune into the Holy Spirit. What would, what would you do to help with our Deepening Our Roots campaign? Okay, on to the business at hand. Uh, as is our want uh, when I have the privilege of being up here, we're going to start with a question. Okay, here's the question. What do you worship? Yeah, see, I'm, I'm getting the looks I expected. We've got a little confusion Maybe some discomfort, a little consternation. What do you worship? Let's say you're someone who happened to drop in who uh, is, let's say, educated and enlightened, a progressive thinker, uh, kind of embedded in our secular our culture as a, as a modern thinker, maybe not really a person of faith. And so I ask the question, what do you worship? And you're like, worship? That's, that's, a, that's a primitive custom of a bygone era done by unenlightened people, you know, who couldn't explain things scientifically and so forth. And, and first of all, if that's how you think, we're glad you're here. We're, we hope you find what we people of faith do here is, is of interest and, and, and intriguing to you. And if you have any questions about what we do here, be sure to see Matt Fields because he'll be sure to answer all of them for you. He was the distinguished gentleman who was up here a minute ago. If you are a Christian who's been walking with the Lord for a while, you, you might be a little uncomfortable. You might be saying, whoa, 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 Dave. I'm a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. What do you mean, what do I worship? I worship the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's who I worship. Why are you asking me this question? I'm a little uncomfortable. 
Or let's say you're a newer follower. Is there a little bit of an echo? Are we okay? Is that just me? We're good? Okay. Let's say you're a newer follower of Christ. You might have a little consternation, right? Uh, That's kind of a a sudden uh, feeling of amazement or dread followed by utter confusion, right? So I say, what do you worship? It's like, what? Wait. Hmm. You know, right? Do you understand what I'm asking? Let's, Let's rephrase the question. Maybe this will help. What are you tempted to worship? Now, maybe that won't help our secular, progressive, modern, enlightened, educated friend, but for the rest of you, you might be going, okay, now I understand. Sure, there's the sin thing. Maybe he's going to go down that idolatry road, right? Maybe it would help if we precisely defined what I mean by worship, okay? As I prepared for this, and I was doing a lot of reading about worship from some of the great theological thinkers of our day and kind of just kind of immersing myself And what I was in for here, I began to get kind of a picture, a broader picture of of what worship is. And so I wanted to to find a definition that kind of encapsulated that. So I got online and I started doing some searching. And, you know, first of all, I went to dictionary.com and got the pretty generic, to feel an adoring reverence or regard for, particularly a deity. I'm like, okay, yeah, I get it. And I found a couple other allusions to it, a state of spirit thought that was an interesting definition of worship. Both an attitude and an act. Okay. So finally I landed on something called worship.com. Now, I'm not sure of the theological background there, but what I saw was a list of definitions by great theological thinkers. John Piper had, in fact, he had two on there. He was a little confused, apparently. Um, Harold Best, John Stott, A.W. Tozer, uh, Louis Giglio, I mean, Christians from kind of all sectors of Christianity defining worship. But all of those, too, were kind of d- confined to that thing, you know, about, about worshiping God. And I needed something broader. And then I saw it. I saw the definition that I knew I wanted to use this morning. And it was by none other than Josh Riley. Josh Riley. Who the heck is Josh Riley? I've never heard of this person. So I start Googling Josh Riley. Not exactly an uncommon name. You know, it's not like R.C. Sproul. Apparently there's a Josh Riley who was on the animation team for Guardians of the Galaxy. Fine work, but I don't think he was my guy. There was another Josh Riley who was raising money uh, because he had cancer. Said a little prayer, wished him luck. Don't think he was my guy. There was another one who was a DJ who invited me to download his playlist. (laughs) Go back to the website, worship.com. I'm like, well, maybe they tell me something. I click, and sure enough, Josh Riley is the founder and developer of worship.com. So what he had done is kind of slid his definition in between all of these, like, murderer's row theologians. By the way, if you're not a baseball fan, murderer's row is a compliment, okay? But here's what he said. He said, worship is everything we think, everything we say, everything we do, revealing that which we treasure and value the most in life. Now, if we take that definition and apply it to my two previous questions, are you starting to track with me now as to where we're going with this? Okay. Based on that definition, 
I am tempted to worship a number of things. I am tempted to worship physical fitness. If I say, well, what do I think about? What do I do? What do I say? That's got to be on the list that I might be tempted. Now, I, I like to think I, I am physically fit for good reasons, right? It makes me able to do more. It, gives, it makes me able to do things more efficiently, right? But I think, you know, I, I work out and, and, and I eat. But I got to say, if I think about it right, I'm tempted to look in the mirror and say, you're looking pretty strong today, Dave. You're climbing 10C on lead, my brother. You're doing good. There was a time when I may have worshipped the Chicago Cubs. Now, I know that one kind of takes care of itself. <laughs> Although we're doing well this year. But my point is, in our American culture, sports is something that we can be tempted to worship, right? I mean, did you see any of the football games, some of the, some of the people at the football games yesterday? About a year ago, uh, one of the things I do in the morning, one of the first things I do is I get up and work out and worship at the Temple of Physical Fitness. But while I do so, I watch Mike and Mike, which is a morning sports talk show. And that's where I get my cultural education, what's going on in the culture around me. And about a year ago, Mike Greenberg said this, America loves football more than anything else. And that might not be entirely true, but there's a segment of our society that does. And almost immediately, there was a commercial after that. The NFL, who, like they don't have enough fans, right, ran this commercial that was encouraging people to be even more and more of a fan. And at the end of that commercial, they said this, getting into being a fan until their fandom becomes who they really are. So the NFL kind of recognizes this whole, whole idea of worship. And, and I guess if I'm really honest, what am I most tempted to worship? Probably me. My comfort, uh, my success, my pride, my reputation. I'm tempted to think and say and do things that reveal that about me. There are all kinds of things that we are tempted to worship. We're tempted to worship money, sex, popularity. We're tempted to worship video games, music relationships. Some people worship Beyonce and Justin Bieber. Some people worship the NFL and NASCAR. I'm driving down the street, I kid you not, two days ago. A pickup truck goes by, I think that had every NASCAR number in its rear window. I can see him being a fan of one or two drivers, but he's a fan of all of them. It was a pickup truck, so it makes sense, right? But I'm like, what is this person thinking? You know, I don't care who wins, just keep turning left. <laughs> right? So this is our fourth week in our series on who are we, Redeemer DNA, right? We started by looking at our identity, that, that our identity is in Christ, that our identity is not in personal success, it's not in relationships, it's not in our stage of life. Our identity is not in what we do or what has been done to us. Our identity is in what Christ has done in his work on the cross, right? And then we talked about community, how we were created for community, because our God is a God of community. Three persons, one essence, and he made us in his image, and that we were saved into community. And we saw how Peter wrote that we are, that we are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then last week we talked about mission. We saw how... We are people on mission because our God is a missional God. He stepped down from heaven and went on mission to earth. 
to rescue you and me. So this week, we're looking at worship. We're looking at uh, when we have our identity properly set, and we are in community, and we are on mission, we can't help but overflow, expressing glory for God and praising Him. So our text today is going to be in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 4. If you stand with me, please. Uh, it's in the Gray Bibles, and if you've been around a little bit, you know that we have two editions of the Gray Bibles. So there's two different page numbers. Uh, I thought we'd have them listed up here. Find John 4, and we're going to start at verse 19. And this will make some of you uncomfortable because we're going to start in the middle of a, of a paragraph. And I, I'm going to brace you. We're going to end before the paragraph ends. It's okay. We'll manage. Okay, so John chapter 4, beginning of verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive, perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for Your Word. We're thankful that You have revealed Yourself to us, uh, that You teach us uh, how to be Your adopted children, that You guide us uh, through our lives, Father. This morning, as we look at Your Word, I just ask that... Uh, that your word would shine through everything that I say and all that we do, and that hearts would be pierced uh, with knowledge of you, uh, and that all that we do would be uh, honoring in, in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Now, many of you recognize the context of this passage, right? It's the, it's the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Um, Jesus is on his way back from a, a trip to Jerusalem. This this incident, this account, only appears in John. And John is the only gospel author that has Jesus making this early trip to Jerusalem where he made trouble, which I love. I love our, that our Savior is a righteous troublemaker. Uh, there was a clearing of the temple thing. Uh, and then this is the trip in which Nicodemus came to him. The, one of the teachers came at night under the cover of darkness, right? Had some questions for Jesus. And Jesus tried to explain to Nicodemus about being born again. And it doesn't seem like Nicodemus was getting it right away because he asked the question, what, I have to go back into my mother's womb and be born again? So didn't quite get it. But Jesus and the boys are on their way back up north. They're going to Galilee. They're taking the direct route, which some stricter Jews avoided because, of course, Samaritans were unclean. It's midday, and he's at the well. And this woman appears to gather water. And the conversation ends up to be a little bit of a sparring match because the first thing he says is, you know, can you draw me some water? And she says, well, you know, I'm a Samaritan woman and you're a Jew. Should you really even be talking to me? And then he says, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for the water and I would give you living water. Another spiritual message with a temporal context. And, and she didn't get it either. So Jesus is kind of 0 for 2 on the, on the spiritual lessons and temporal context on this trip. And then she, he switches the conversation to her personal life. You know, go get your husband. She's like, well, I don't have a husband. And he's like, yeah, you've had five. And the man you're living with isn't one, right? And so then she switches the conversation to what we see now. 
Okay, and then she, 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 she makes a, a statement, an interesting statement, that is this. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, it looks like a statement, grammatically. It's got a period at the end. But it's a question. She's saying, you worship there, we worship here. What's up with that? How does this work? But the question is revealing because it reveals to us the broken state of our worship since the fall, since sin entered the world, because that's not how we were created to worship. Let's go back to the original question. I asked you, what do you worship? I did not ask you, do you worship? Because you do. Because God created us like that. When God created Adam and Eve, he created creatures whose lives were all worship. They lived in harmony with the Father. They had an intimate relationship with him that this side of, of heaven we're never going to understand. Their lives reflected what God had created, that it was good. And everything they did was a continuous outpouring, says Harold Best, of worship for this God. And then sin entered the world. And everything changed. Everything changed. We became different. Death entered the world. Everything changed, including our worship. In Romans, Paul kind of describes this corruptness that enter our worship. In chapter 1, he's, he's describing, he's giving a scathing rebuke of those who are unrighteous and ungodly who have rejected the truth of who God is, even though He has revealed Himself in our creation. And so in Romans 1, beginning in the 21st verse, Paul says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We are born worshipers. The fall did not change that, but it changed the direction of our worship. It changed the object of our worship as the NFL says, until the fandom becomes who they really are. And you know, this idea that we are as human beings, worshipers, is not lost on those who aren't in the faith. Author David Foster Wallace, a non-Christian, wrote this. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Now, from a secular standpoint, but nonetheless, an interesting observation about who we are. Now, let me give a little blanket caveat here. If you watch the Colts game tomorrow night, I'm not su suggesting you're engaging in sinful worship. If you go out and run two miles today because you want to be physically fit, I am not suggesting 
you are engaging in sinful worship. What I am saying, though, is we are born to worship. We will worship something. And since sin entered the world, the object of our worship has changed from the living God to almost everything and anything else. Sin changed our worship, redirected it, refocused it, sent it where it should not belong. And therefore, sin issues are also worship issues. Sin changed everything about our worship. But God had a plan. Even as Adam and Eve were sinning, even as he was pronouncing judgment on Adam and Eve that we would have to toil to get through this life, that there would be death, there would be pain in childbirth, he was even in those sentences beginning to reveal his plan, his plan to rescue us. In Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From the offspring of Eve, God would keep for himself a people, and that people would bring forth the Savior. And that Savior would conquer Satan and death and reconcile us to him. But, in the meantime, because of sin, he chose to set up a system whereby we could worship. Because sin had entered our hearts, we no longer had the ability of our own accord of our, of our own volition to worship him in a way that was worthy. So what he did was he had to set up a system for us. In fact, because of our sin, we could not even be in his presence. If God were to just show up, very bad things would happen. So God established some very specific details about how we do it. It started with the tabernacle, this kind of mobile tent worship center that the children of Israel erected according to very specific specifications. Here's how you would worship. Here's what the worship place would look like. He established priests. Here's what they would do. Here's how they would do it. He established ceremonies and days of the week and days of the year in which we would worship because that is the only way we could do it. We would gather on the Sabbath. Through priests, animals would be sacrificed. There would be reading of Scripture, singing of psalms and prayers. And, and this whole system was not without a method. Everything in Old Testament worship points to Jesus. The structure of the tabernacle, the contents of the tabernacle, what the priests did, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies was a sign of Christ's body through which we can come back in the presence of God. The priests' animal sacrifices, the, the unblemished lamb, reflect perfectly what Jesus would do when he would, when he would come and rescue us. The intercession of the priests represent Jesus as well. The Hebrew writer says Jesus is our great high priest. So all of that pointed to Jesus. But the ceremonies would be stiff and arbitrary because our hearts were wrong because of sin. We would follow them by rote. There would, this would be time and place worship. You would do this at this time, in this place, in this manner because that's all we were capable of. I find that the parallels between uh, the civil law of the Old Testament and the specifications for all of the ceremonies are uh, quite interesting. And both are based on the fact that we could not trust our hearts. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So what God did was, if you look at, if you look at uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, okay, 
what you'll find in those four books is, is a certain amount of narrative, certain amount of history, certain amount of this is what happened. But then woven throughout all of that, you find the law, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, which still guides us today, very small section, but then chapter after chapter, verse after verse of very specific civil law. If your cow wanders onto your neighbor's property and kills his goat, you owe him three goats. Very specific ceremonial stuff. On this day, you will do this. If you commit this act, here's the sacrifice. And, he, and it had to be that specific. And amongst all of that is this gem from Deuteronomy 25. When men fight with one another, and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him, and puts out her hand, and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand, your eye shall have no pity. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there's like four of you back there grabbing the gray Bibles. I see you. Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy. It's in there. Now, two notes before I get to the serious point. Notice it says when. When men fight. Because that's our sin nature. We're going to fight. And the other thing is in the ESV, there are so many pronouns who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the pro I'm not really sure which him that is. Do you see what I'm saying? But there's a point to be made here. What kind of people need to have civil laws laid out for them in such detail and specificity and so elaborate? And this is an example from the civil law, but if you look at the ceremony, the worship laws in the Old Testament, they're just as detailed. What kind of people need to have that sort of detail. I'll tell you what. Before Christ, I never know when this is going to happen. Before Christ, in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, I do. And I would suggest you do too. Because we are a sinful, broken people. And so God established, because of that, this time and place worship because of sin, because we cannot not sin. So the woman at the well asks this question about do we worship here or do we worship there? We are born worshipers, created to do so. Our great-grandparents worshiped in a way we can only imagine in this intimate relationship with our Father, but that worship became desperately corrupted when sin entered the world. So God, for our benefit, Establish time and event worship. Do it like this. Do it when I tell you. Do it in this manner. But God had a plan. But until that time had come for our Savior, the worship would be stiff and arbitrary and ceremonial. Back to our text. The woman says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers 
will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. This is a proclamation of biblical proportions, mostly because it's in the Bible. Jesus is inaugurating a new age, a new time. Because of Christ's finished work on the cross, our hearts have been reoriented and reignited. We now no longer have, we can worship in spirit and truth instead of time and place. Our hearts are transformed by the gospel. They overflow because of the gospel. We neither go to the mountain or go to the temple. We worship where we are. We worship whenever and wherever we are. And we do so because we are now God's temple. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. We used to have to go to the tabernacle, to go to the temple, to go to the place where God dwelled. Now he dwells right here. And all of our lives are nothing but worship. Three chapters later, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That those six words, you were bought with a price, contain the entire crux of the gospel. We are not our own. We were purchased. Christ paid for you with his life. And it was not any ordinary life. In Philippians, Paul just beautifully says this, Have this mind among yourselves which is in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, stepped down from heaven, left his royal home, went on mission for us by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's why we can worship now in spirit and in truth. And then Paul goes on with that key word, so. In response to those six words, glorify God in your body. In Romans, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, the place where God lives, as living sacrifices. And now, what are we to God? What is our worship to God? Holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. Because of Christ, our worship is now acceptable to God. We are transformed and our worship is transformed. As we learned in our study of 1 John over the summer, there are three things that tell us that we are in Christ. The first is we know who He is. Proper doctrine. The Son of the living God. The second is the love we have for one another. And the third is that our lives are being more and more uh, transformed to be Christ-like. And our worship needs to do the same thing. To be transformed more and more to be reflective of how we were created originally. And worship once again becomes holy and acceptable because we now worship in spirit and truth. So what, what does this spirit and truth worship look like? 
Jesus tells us, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. I learned a new word this week. Adiaphora. Saw it in some of the stuff I was reading. I'm like, cool, new word. I kept reading. Kept coming up. Adiaphora. Mike, do you know what it is? Sometimes I use medicine. I'm like, after reading it 16 times, I'm like, I'm probably the only one in the room who's never heard of this word before, right? It basically means doing neither good nor harm. In a theological context, this word is used in these articles I read to describe things in Scripture that are neither prohibited or that we're commanded to do. And a lot of it applies to our gospel freedoms, okay? Things that, that are kind of changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We are no longer restricted by the dietary rules. We no longer observe the old Jewish feast days and so forth, right? But associated with all of the discussion of this in Scripture, in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians, Paul always comes back to the idea of worship. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we're back to our original definition. Everything you think, everything you say, everything you do reveals that which you treasure and value most in life. Every aspect of every Christian's life should honor God. Every aspect of every Christian's life should honor God. We can't do this perfectly. We are not in a time when we are fully restored. But we can move more and more to being more and more Christ-like. Let's go back to Josh Riley's definition. Worship is everything we think, everything we say, everything we do, revealing that which we treasure and value most. For the Christian, worship is everything we think, everything we say, and everything we do, revealing our love for God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Everything, everything, everything. What about what we're doing here this morning? If worship is now spirit and truth, all of life worship, everything that we do, can't, can't I be at home watching NFL Countdown and, and worship? What Jesus did on the cross for our worship was not to replace, was not to negate what was done before. It was to expand it. We gather to worship in the midst of our ongoing continuous, all-of-life, spirit-and-truth worship. We gather in the company of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We gather to take in anew the gospel and to continue to allow it to penetrate our hearts. We gather here to be reminded that our souls have an anchor that sustains us and a hope that prepares us to go back out into the community, to go back out into the city, to go back out into the world on mission. We gather here to hear the word proclaimed and explained. We gather here to celebrate the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And you know what? We gather here and we get a sweet taste of what is to come when he returns. In two verses, Paul summarizes this idea of worship. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs 
with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Redeemer gathered. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through Him. Redeemer scattered in the community. Worship is motivated by who we are. By our identity as adopted sons and daughters in Christ. We express our worship in community. We do it in community because our God is a God of community and He rescued us into community. We apply our worship on mission. We are called to take the gospel message out. And our lives worship Him as we go. God is seeking worshipers. May we be such people transformed by the gospel, embracing our identity as adopted children, in community, God's chosen people, on mission taking the gospel to the world, and worshiping Him in spirit and truth. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You that You are a God of rescue, uh, that You have rescued our worship that you have taken it from stiff and arbitrary and following guidelines to indwelling our hearts with your very spirit that we might just freely let go and, and express our love for you and, and our adoration for you and our appreciation of you in all that we do in our lives. And when we gather together um, as a community, as your chosen people, um, as rescued sinners, Father. We just thank you for that. Lord, as we go forward, we would just ask that, that our hearts would be constantly aware that everything that we think, say, and do should reflect our love for you uh, and your love for us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.